Well, tonight I want to talk to you for a few moments on relationship uh, with God. And the fact is, to follow Jesus passionately and to follow him personally, we need to know him uh, in a very real way. And this is the foundation for Christianity. And I'm certain that you know this, but when you read the Bible, you're face-to-face with it all the time. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible points us to the foundation of Christianity and that it is relationship with God. This is what he made us for. This is what he's passionate about. This is what he's pursuing us for is this very real relationship. And when I became a Christian 23 years ago, give or take a year, I continued to mistake that. Each year that goes by, you, you have to add one, you know? And every now and again, I forget to, but when I became a Christian, I, I was hearing many pastors talking about how you can have a relationship with God, and I thought, this is very fantastic. But I didn't know what in the world that meant. Did you? I had no, I mean, I was brand new, and I thought to myself, I don't even know how to have a quality relationship with a person, let alone God, who I can't see and certainly cannot discern what he is trying to say. And so I must admit to you tonight that while I did not know what it meant to have a relationship with God, my heart told me it was true. And it's something that excited me. It's something that it's truth and reality. It was deposited into my own heart. But when you begin to think about relationship, it implies love and intimate knowledge, communication, understanding, interaction, and all of these types of things. And I just came sort of into that reality that I, I don't think I know how to do this. And so isn't it a wonderful truth that as God invites us into relationship, he helps us not only to understand it, but he helps us to make it more and more real. And so this is what Christianity is really uh, all about. And the Bible points us to that. And I want to ask you a question. It's rhetorical, so don't try to dialogue during my monologue. What is your relationship with God look like? If someone were to ask you to describe it to them, what is your relationship with God like? What terms would you use? What would it sound like to them? Not just how would you say it, but what, how, what would they hear you say? What is your relationship with God like? How are you developing your relationship with God? What are the steps that you're taking? Just like a married couple who wants to have a strong marriage and they know in order to do that, they have to be intentional. They have to fight for it. Just like we would do that in a very real marriage relationship or a relationship with our kids. And if I were to ask you, how are you going to have a better relationship with your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad, how would you describe what you are doing? What would it look like in real terms so that a person listening to you could actually emulate it? They could follow what you're doing and find that there was life in it. It would be an example to them. Well, friends, I hope that we have some answer to that. And if we don't, there's no need for shame because we can and that's what's most important tonight. Not, I want to just walk you through a couple principles that I think are important to better understand relationship with God. And the first is the foundation of it. And you have to understand, I do, that we were created for relationship. This is something that we were created for. It's not uh, some great thing that Jesus brought that was never intended. Jesus came to restore us back to what the Father intended. This isn't a new thing. This is actually why we were made. And Genesis talks about this. It says right here in Genesis chapter one and verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the sky and the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created a male and female. So here's what Genesis is telling us. The Bible opens with God making everything, the heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, and, and last but not least, at least on this list, is us. But we are the crowning creation of God's glory. We are, let's just say it, special. You know, look at your neighbor and tell him you're special. Do it again with a smile on your face because you meant it in a real way. 
God made us in relationship. He, he, he made all of this stuff that's magnificent. Some of you, 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 you hike and, and you love nature and creation and you marvel at mountains and others. We look up in the sky. We, we love the sunny days because it's all clear and we, we just love going outside and we're happier when it's nicer outside and we love the clouds and we love the sun and we love the sky. We marvel at God's creation and yet God marvels at you. God marvels at you. I'm not sure if you woke up today thinking about that concerning yourself or that your heavenly father literally looks at you in such a way where he marvels at his creation. He made you, he loves you. It's our design that we would have such a relationship with God. And can I tell you tonight, he wants us. God created us because he wanted us. God did not need us. He was complete in himself. God was fully complete, did not need anyone or anything but he chose to create us because he wanted us. You're wanted by God. That's why you were made. That's why I was made. Nothing else in all of creation bears the image and likeness of God like we do. And this shows us that while God created us, he made us also to interact with him, to communicate with him, to experience him. This is not reserved for Pentecostals. This is not reserved for people that are feelers and lack intellectual capacity. This is for every one of us to actually experience God. It's something that's hard to articulate. Every now and again, I'll make a comment like this, and I, I pray that you know what I mean. I try to say it, and I hope everybody gets it, but I say, like, we're not going to get to heaven and meet Jesus face to face and cross over the threshold of glory and then realize, oh, this was really real. And like, that's the first time we're ever gonna feel him, experience him, know his affection. Like it's as real today as it ever will be. And certainly we're gonna come face to face on that day. It says that we will know as we are known. Yes, there is coming greater glory, but it is no less real today. We were made for relationship, but we were also made for relationship with others. God created us. And the one thing he said was not good is for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18. I will make a helper suitable for him. So God from this relationship with us says, I want to make family, marriage, children. This is multiplication. Relationships are literally life-giving from God's design. God made Adam and Eve with a capacity to learn and to understand and to grow. It's, it's an amazing thing to walk with him. We see this even in the garden. I love it in Genesis chapter two, a picture that sometimes you can skim over, but it says that God brought Adam along and he allows him to name the animals. And there's this really amazing point in Genesis two. It says that God watched to see what Adam would name the animals. And it isn't that God didn't know. I mean, that's sort of his big thing, right? Omniscience. It's called perfect knowledge. Past, present, and future, perfect knowledge. We're talking about a being that we cannot understand, nor can we describe. But it says that he watched to see what Adam would name the animals. That to me is like relationships. That's what that is. It's a picture of how God was interacting with Adam. And it's beautiful to me. It's beautiful to me. So this picture that we see with God and Adam and Eve in the garden is, is wonderful. In fact, if you stopped right there, you'd say, close the book. I'm good. I'm done. Let's get on with this. I, I love it. This is what I want. It's what I was made for. But the problem is, is that our relationship was damaged. Relationship between God and man was damaged by what we call sin. Genesis 2.15, you know the story, but I want to repeat it because it's worth repeating. God speaks to Adam. It says here in verse 15, then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And he commanded him saying, from any tree of the garden, you can eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. God gives Adam and Eve a choice, a command of abstinence. Do not do this, but certainly a choice because that tree is always there. That opportunity is always available. Don't eat from this tree, but the tree isn't going anywhere. And who knows, they could have walked by that tree every day for all we know. We weren't there. 
but the tree is there. It's a choice. God introduces a command and a choice at the same time. And I find the name of the tree really interesting. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And to me, it speaks of another way to get whatever it is that we would have from God. I'm trying to find another way to get knowledge. I'm trying to find another way for me to be the knowledgeable one in this relationship. But Matthew chapter four, where Jesus is tempted by the enemy, one thing he says back to the enemy when he says, hey, you should turn this stone uh, into bread. And he said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus responds to the devil, all I need is whatever the father says. That's all I need. And can I tell you, that's all we need. All we need is whatever the father says. That's why we talk about the word of God and how precious it is in our life. That's all we need is God's word in our life. That's what's most important. The narrative out there can be all the opposite. It could say whatever it might say, but the word is always true, which is why we believe it. But Adam and Eve, although they had a clear command of what not to do, they did not follow what God said. And the devil enters into their story in Genesis chapter three. And this is where our relationship is truly damaged with God because of disobedience or otherwise known as sin. In verse one, chapter three, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we can eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate and the eyes of both of them were opened. Everybody say opened. opened. Their eyes were opened when they disobeyed God. And they knew at that point that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. The first thing they did after their eyes were opened is they covered themselves. The covering of God was on them before their eyes were opened, but now they have to cover themselves. The temptation from the devil was to be like God without God. The enemy was tempting them and prodding them to make them believe that God was holding out on them, that God wasn't good, that God wasn't telling them everything they need to know. Actually, that's true in a sense. He's always half right. The devil is a counterfeit. He gives half truth. And that's why it's so seductive. The reason that we allow the seduction of the enemy is because it's usually half true. If it's 100% true, most of us will never go for it. Adam and Eve certainly won't, but there's something about the longer we talk to the enemy or allow the voice of the enemy, the more appealing sin becomes. And so the longer this interaction happens, the more appealing what he is offering becomes and the less the command of God was right there in, 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 front, in front of her. So disobedience to God is their path from this point forward. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin means to miss the mark. And through sin, death was imparted to the whole human race. And when I say death, I'm talking about spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Look what Romans 5:12 says. Therefore, just as sin has entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in the way death came to all people, because all sinned, to be sure sin was in the world before the law was given, as we see it back here in the garden, as we just read, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command per se, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one that is to come. What is this passage telling us? Well, first of all, sin is very serious. Sin is something that's been imparted to the whole human race. Sin brings death. It's a spiritual cancer that kills everything and everyone. Sin is not kind of bad, it is really bad, and we minimize it and we do ourselves no service when we do. We often trivialize sin and we speak about it as though it's not bringing forth real death and separation from God, but that's exactly what it has done, even in its smallest forms. And this is the plight of 
what some struggle with when they say things like, well, I'm a good person. Well, I'm not really that bad. And usually when we say those things, we're minimizing our own sin by comparing ourselves to people that we deem bad, worthy of judgment, where we deem ourselves worthy of mercy. Or at least that's what those comments are hoping for. We want judgment for others and we want mercy for self. But Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person has fallen short. There is no one that is good, none but God. All have fallen short. All have missed the mark. All aren't getting in. All are separated from their relationship with God. Every person has a damaged relationship with God. The scripture is quite clear that sin has brought death which means that without change, friends, listen, this is the bad news, we're doomed. I've, I've got to let the bad news soak in. And some of you, you know the gospel really well, but let this soak in again. This is how bad sin is. Because one generation after another continues to need to learn this truth that we're conveying tonight. We have to remember and we have to pass on the truth. Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. Now, I don't have the time um, tonight to go through all that transpired from Adam, Adam and Eve to the time of Jesus. But God established the law, the temple, the priests, the sacrificial system, all of this pointing to our very real need. And then in time and history, God implemented his plan to restore our relationship with God the Father that is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came to do two primary things among many others. And the first was to give his life and, was to, and the second was to be an example as a way of life. And so we would say that Jesus is the one who demonstrates what life is to be like with the Father. He's not just the payment for my sins, but he's the pattern for my life. He came to do both. Jesus even said this in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. But what was lost? What was damaged? our relationship with God. This terminology here is, is quite unique because he's using this at the tail end of a story with a man named Zacchaeus, a person that nobody was interested in being friends with. And Jesus uses this as a stamp to the interaction that has transpired with Zacchaeus and people have their jaws dropped as to why Jesus would befriend such a man because Jesus saw something in him that nobody else could see. And it was, he was repenting and he was turning from self. He was turning from sin and he was turning towards Jesus when nobody else was. And Jesus in his seeing something in Zacchaeus was really a revelation that Zacchaeus saw something in Jesus. Jesus restored him. The word save here, the son of man came to seek and save. The word save uh, and it means to restore. The word lost means damage. This is why we say Jesus came to restore our damaged relationship with God. Salvation through Christ is not just about what we're saved from. It's about what we're saved for. And if you've been around any religious traditions, even in Christendom, sometimes we hammer on what it is that we're saved from. And that is noteworthy, hell and death and destruction. And that's worth a preach. That's worth, worth a conversation. That's worth a sermon series. I'm not saying it's not, but sometimes we hammer so hard on what he came to save us from, we fail to emphasize what he came to save us for. And that is a deep, meaningful, abiding relationship with Jesus that nobody in the room is an expert at. But it's something we're invited into. Isn't that beautiful? Just hours before Jesus' betrayal, this is hours before it, he was praying to the Father and his disciples actually got to peer into the prayer of Jesus. In fact, this might be the Lord's Prayer. We always think of Luke 11 and Matthew 6 as the Lord's Prayer. That probably would be better stated as the disciples' prayer. But this is probably the Lord's Prayer, John 17. Hours before his betrayal, it gives us insight into God's intention for human, for human beings. And this is what it says. Listen to this carefully. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. He's defining something. This is eternal life. That they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Now, if you haven't heard this verse recently, let me go ahead and explain this. Eternal life is defined by a relationship in this prayer. This is eternal life. Eternal life is not defined on a place where we go, what we get. It is defined by a person, a relationship that they might know. This word know is, is not know about. It is to be intimately acquainted with. It is to have exchange with, that they might know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, therefore, is not a future inheritance only, but it is also a present possession. The minute we come to Christ, eternity is set in our hearts, and that is based on relationship and no less. When Jesus defines eternal life as a relationship, he is saying the minute that someone comes into relationship with him, they are experiencing eternal life. That's a fact. That's a reality. And Paul says things a little bit differently when he's talking about those of us that come to Christ and receive his sacrifice on our behalf to forgive us of sins, he says in Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. I just love this picture. We think about people being far away. We think about distance. And he's saying everyone was far off, but because of the blood of Jesus, you've been brought near. I mean, there are lots of people on the planet. I will never get close to them. I will never know them. I will never hear what they talk about behind closed doors. And this scripture is telling us that because of what Jesus did, we have literally been brought near. And the most important person on the earth and above the earth and over the earth has brought us near enough to know him, walk with him, hear him because he wanted us. It's a beautiful story Christianity conveys. If you're not inspired, I'm working hard. You know, I understand. You understand. The gospel is beautiful. Our sin is horrendous, but Jesus is the greater picture. And I say it at times and I'll say it to you again. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner? Because if it weren't true, we'd be stuck in the mud and the mire still to this day. But it is true. Jesus is a better savior. In the Old Testament, people would bring a sacrifice to God so their sin could be forgiven and fellowship with God could be restored, but it was only temporary. It was only temporary. And it was a foreshadowing of that which is to come, namely the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The New Testament, we see God the Father who sends his Son. He's a perfect once and for all sacrifice so that this relationship is permanently connected there is no ebb and flow. There is no up and down. There is no, now you see him, now you don't. Jesus came to make it secure. It's as secure as it can get. Did you sin today? It's still secure. <laughs> Did you have a terrible attitude today? It's still secure. Did you treat everybody the way that you ought to, good Christian? Still secure. It's by the blood of Jesus. Not your best day, amen. It's not behavior, it's belief. We buy into the living Savior who gave his precious blood, we're in. And that thing can't be pulled out by man. You can try. It's a beautiful story. Jesus gave his life to bring us near for relationship, near enough to know him, walk with him, hear from him. And this is crucial. All of this is simply just based on the person of Jesus. And here's the point. You cannot follow Jesus unless you know that it's all about relationship with Jesus first. To go where he goes, to do what he does, to understand his words, it must be that it is based on relationship first. It is not based on a religion. It is not based on how we behave. It is not based on how good our day was. We're gonna have good days and bad days, but all days are a day of grace when you're under the covering of Jesus Christ. It starts with the gospel and the gospel speaks about relationship. And that's where we begin to follow Jesus. You cannot follow someone you do not know. And you cannot know him outside of receiving him and through, through what he's done for us, amen. But God is our father. What kind of relationship are we talking about? We're talking about God becoming our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. I think it's vital that when we read the scriptures and Jesus is our pattern, it's an invitation into a life that otherwise we would not know. Jesus is a model and an example 
in introducing us to God as our heavenly father. He wants to father us. It's not just a theological fact. It's a living reality for the person who is walking or seeking to walk step by step with God. We read in Luke chapter 11 and verse two, Jesus is talking about prayer. This is just an example. And he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Matthew chapter six, he says it a, a little bit differently when he talks about when, when you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Praise be to God. You are worthy. You are worthy of worship. You are high and exalted, high and lifted up. There's this sense of like worshiping God, like you are great, like you are incomprehensible. But it starts with Father. And I think it's an amazing sort of introduction into prayer, into intimacy. He says, our Father, hallowed be your name. There's a tension in the middle of that. Like God is great and he's mighty and he's magnificent and he's wonderful, but he is our Father. And so you stand in this place of God being father and God being almighty and he's father and he's almighty. And so you sort of live under this reverence and then you, you, you live in this privilege of you being a son or daughter and it's this tension, it's this beautiful awe and wonder. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to feel. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But it starts with father. He tells the disciples to pray that way. And yeah, it's a collective prayer in a sense, but the more Jesus lives and demonstrates life with God the Father, the more personal it becomes. It angers the religious spirit. It angers the religious mind. See, you can't just go to God like that. God just isn't your father like that. See, because we have to behave a certain way. We have to be a certain way. We have to act a, a certain way. It really offends the religious mind because we want to earn it. We want to deserve it is something in us that wants that. I, I admit it myself. It's just something about us that wants to achieve. Anybody else in that camp? You could be honest with me tonight. And God isn't qualifying that bait for, for relationship to transpire, but there's some little religious guy. I don't know how he totally sounds, so I'd try to mimic him if I could to explain what he's like on my shoulder. It's like, you can't do that. You're not good enough. I don't know. He just taunts me. But it's like if, if, you're, if your children, you know, God's such a good father. If your kids, when they're young, they, they you know, have a lot of accidents, especially when they're sick. And so, you know, I, I hate when our kids are sick, especially when they were younger. It, it, it's terrible, Bridget. It, it, it's, it's horrible. And they, and they, and they throw out all that stuff. I just, it, in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, it's just the, it's the worst. It is just the worst. And, but I'll tell you something that just doesn't happen. Like when your kids rush into your room and they're four or five and they're throwing up and they're having a, I mean, something horrible is happening or whatever. Like the last thing you do as a parent is stop them at the door and say, wait a minute, before I help you, did you sass your sister today? Were you good today? Did you talk the right way to your mom? I mean, did you say all your Bible scriptures today? I mean, you don't like qualify whether or not you're gonna help them, you know? Like it's very, very clear that in a moment like that, like you're not, we don't live in a way like that where we qualify their behavior in order for us to be father or mother. Like we understand relationship, but for some reason we sort of cut it off and we say God's a good, good father. We say God's better than we are. And yet sometimes we don't really practically believe it because of the shame and the condemnation that we've lived under. And so I want to ask you this question. How do you see God? How do you see God? How do you talk to God? How do you talk to God? Evaluate your prayer life for a moment. And this isn't shame if, you know, if you don't have much of one right now and maybe that's where you need to start. That's fair. There's no shame for that. But God is calling you to, to begin that, to walk more in that. Why? Because he loves you. 
because he wants to speak to you, because he wants to reveal himself to you, because God wants to walk with us like he created us for. And we turn it into shame. We turn it into religious baggage and bondage, like I'm not doing something I ought to be doing. God isn't like that. God wants to be with us, and we need to root our relationship back into this desire, back into what God created us for. Amen. We've got to come back to that place where prayer isn't like a thing or a lifeline, but it's a living relationship with someone who loves us more than we could ever imagine. He's a loving father. What is a father like? A father wants to instruct. A father imparts identity. A father encourages. A father corrects. And God does it on a level that we can't even comprehend, nor can I articulate. I learned some of these lessons, you know, personally, and I'm learning them all the time, just like the rest of us. But when I've told you our story, Bridget was a single teenage mom, raised her boys to 9 and 11 by the time I came around, and I adopted them at uh, 24 and her, when her and I were married. And for the first six months, man, the relationship between new dad, who they prayed for every night, and I was the answer to their prayers, right? And uh, at 24, I mean, I had everything that a father would need right there, you know, and uh, I make fun, but we, you know, you, you, you commit and you give what you got. And, and Bridget, Bridget's the hero of the story because she was, she was already given what she got for many years. And so enter this guy that's been absent that they're praying for, and I'm sort of, you know, filling in to, to, to try to give to them what they've, what they've lost. And, and so for six months, it was pretty great. You know, it was really good. And me and the boys were getting along quite well. Nine and 11-year-old rambunctious boys. I was a youth pastor at the time, so that was fun. And of course, I knew how to minister to nine and 11-year-olds, right? Hey, yeah, this is no problem. I'm junior hires and high schoolers all the time. Half of them don't like me, but it don't matter. And six months into the whole relationship, you know, if anybody's been a stepdad or, a, or you've been a stepson or daughter, you, you kind of know there's a lot that comes with that. There's a lot of weird tension, a lot of weird relational dynamics in the home. You don't know what to do or what to say or when to say it, or you're upset and you want to side with whoever. And yeah, anyways, we, we went through all of that for many years. But six months is all it took for that relationship to start to be strained. And the Lord revealed something to me personally And that was, is that even though you want a father, even though these boys wanted a father, I mean, they had a mother, but even though they wanted a father, they did not know how to be sons when one came along. Now, the truth is, I didn't know how to be a father at that point either, but just, I could see it in them. They did not know how to yield themselves. They did not know how to submit themselves. They did not know how to relate to me. The thing that they had been praying for, wanting, asking for, all of a sudden was the thing that they were resisting because as they had it, they didn't know how to have it. And the Lord would minister to me patience and help me along. And, and I'm just saying that a lot of times when we enter into this thing called Christianity, we begin to walk with God. It's not automatic. We don't exactly know how to pray, what to say, how to walk. And so a lot of folks, and this is my pastoral experience, is a lot of people live by guilt. They live by what they ought to do, what they should do, what's the right thing to do. And the right thing to do is great. And we want to go by the word, but we've got to see that the person behind the word is someone that loves us more than we can comprehend. And if that isn't understood, if that's not fixed into our heart, a lot of our Christianity isn't what it's supposed to be. It gets undermined very quickly and very often. And there's this religious baggage and this guilt and these false motives that are ascribed to God, and then we get angry with God, and we get confused about what we thought should happen or would happen that doesn't happen, and a lot of these things enter into this, this story of our lives walking with God, and it isn't what we thought it would be. It isn't what we were told it would be, and it doesn't look like what we've been praying for, and this is something that many have experienced, and so tonight what we're saying is we're saying that God made us that our relationship was damaged, Jesus came to restore it, like really restore it, like really secure it, really permanently take care of it so that we could actually walk this thing out and we're imperfect and we've got problems and we've got issues and he already knows it, but he's helping us to become better and different and more like him throughout all of this. All we have to do is follow him. All we have to do is follow him. 
We stay committed and we stay growing. And he's a father and we relate to him like a father. How do you see God? How do you see God? Is he a father? Do you speak to him this way? Do you think of God this way as an endearing father? If you were robbed of a good father, naturally speaking, humanly speaking, God is so much more. God can redeem all of that. That which has been robbed from us in the natural, God can restore it. I have actually had people tell me it's not true. I was preaching at a church one time and a guy read my book, the first chapter. If you've heard what I'm saying before, you're right. I have shared it before, a little bit differently. But I had a guy walk up to me right after the service and say, you know, all that stuff about God being a father and God can redeem what I lost or what was robbed from me and my earthly father, like, that's not true. And I said, well, based on what premise would you say such a thing? And then he basically just read me his life story about how terrible his life was. And friends, his life was terrible. I wasn't going to take that from him. I told him, I'm really sorry. Your story is terrible. And for what it's worth, I'm sorry you had to go through all that. But what I'm not sorry for is saying what I said and that God can redeem even that. He can And the only way that you can know that is you have to start by believing that. You've got to put your faith in something and you shouldn't put it in in your story of your failed father. You should put it into the one that doesn't fail. That's what I'm trying to say is that God can redeem. God can restore. Well, why did he let this happen to begin with? Because people sin. And I'm sorry. That's what we taught our boys growing up. Where's this male figure that's supposed to be my dad who hasn't been around. I raised two boys that were abandoned by their dad. Trust me, I understand. And I'm just a stepdad, so I didn't have the connection. And I know what it's like to actually coach two young boys through forgiving their dad who never showed up in their life. I know what it's like to sit with them for years and help them learn how to forgive and us not speak a bad word about those people in our home and teach them about the nature of sin. And this is how far sin goes in hurting us and wounding us. But we've got to forgive and we've got to bless. And don't we understand because we've all sinned and some sin, yes, hurts us more than others, but it's still sin. I know what it's like to teach alongside my wife, two boys who had to experience that growing up. I know what it's like. I get it. We all have been touched by sin, but we all can be touched by a loving father. That's the point of tonight. Jesus is always trying to restore people's understanding of how God wants to communicate with them, walk with them. And he even says it in this prayer, and I'm I'm closing right now. I'm Jandy, you can come on up, but Matthew chapter six, this is what he says in verse five, and he's talking about prayer, but can I tell you, he's talking about our relationship with God. Listen, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen by people. I tell you, they have received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close your door, pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not, be, do not keep on babbling like pagans. In other words, don't figure out a formula or a way to have something with God that's not real. And they keep on doing all this because they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus constantly contrasts the religious leaders of their day with someone who communes with the father. When you pray, go into your secret place, close the door behind you and speak to your father who sees in secret. In other words, there's something about our relationship with God that we have that nobody else is invited into. Friends, this is the reality is is that our walk with God cannot grow unless there is something about it that nobody else is invited into. That we're giving him more space, more room in our life and it's just not difficult. In fact, it's impossible for me to talk to somebody about what relationship with God is like unless they're willing to take the steps to experiencing it themselves. It's impossible. I can describe it, but we're not going to witness together. We're not going to see eye to eye. We're not going to have that mutual experience where we both understand what we're talking about unless we're giving God more of, of of our life. And what comes from that is so much, and I, I have a story. There's questions on your, on your paperwork, and you certainly can take those home. You can answer those questions. <clears throat> In fact, read them to your spouse. Read them to your friend. 
Read them to the person to your right and to your left after the service. Make sure they answer them thoroughly, effectively, powerfully, passionately, Lee, all that. But I was thinking today about something that might sound kind of silly, but it sort of relates a little bit to my talk tonight. And that, that is, is that um, Bridget and I, we just got a new car recently. I know this is probably not the best time to get a new car, but it is the best time to sell a car. We found that out too. We, we, we took our first step towards ending or towards empty nesting. We're not there, but we realized that the third row of our van is no longer occupied. And so we had to take a step. So we, we let go of the van and we got the CRV, which is basically just a shorter version of the van. And, uh, and we got a, it, it's a new car, it's 2022. I've never bought a brand new car in my life. This was the first time and it only made sense because of the trade-in, but we got this new car and um, of course I was driving at home. It's, it's really her car, but I'm driving at home and, and it's a 2022. And it's got all these bells and whistles and gadgets and things that like, I don't even know what they do. Like there's a button that you can push on it that I don't even, I forget every time I drive the car, I forget that it's there. It's a button that actually warms up your steering wheel. I mean, isn't that, that's amazing. I mean, somebody at Honda is doing some good work there. You know, I might sound really luxurious or whatever, but I mean, it's just, it's just a fantastic idea, okay? And it's got another button on there that will start the car and you can be like really far away. Some of you have this. I've never had this. I have never had this before in my life. Bridget has never had this. a car starter, okay? Starts your car, a button. I'm still trying to figure out how to start the car because you got to hold it down for five seconds and then click another thing. I can't figure out how to do that yet. I mean, I'm sure if I sat down, I'm smart enough to get it, but I haven't taken the time to figure out the details of all these gadgets and bells and whistles. And and, uh, and I know you haven't. I know you still got it. Yeah, I just don't even have to ask her because we, we're just simple people. We're driving the car, you know. It's, it's got heated seats. Click, that works. I think we figured out the heated steering wheel. And, so, and then you got a place where you can put your phone and it's got like, I'm, I'm not bragging. I'm just, exp I'm like literally fascinated with this. It's like you put your phone and it powers your phone. You don't have to plug it in anymore. You just put it on the thing. And I've got one in my office, but not my car in her car. It's your car, but in your car. <laughs> just put it there and it just powers the thing, I think. I mean, that's what they say. That's what they advertise. It's got a little light there, it shows. And I was thinking about, it's just very silly, I know. But I was thinking about this today. I was like, we, we bought something and we really don't understand like 75% of what we have. I mean, we can drive it. We drive it. She drives it and we can look at it and it's ours, like our names on the title, on the deed. I mean, we own it, but we don't understand all of the things that it can do. And I'm, I'm told you can do a lot with this thing, a lot more than the, what we had before. And my, my point is, I think when we come to Christ and we enter into this beautiful relationship there are all these benefits that are made available to us. There are all these, they're not accessories, friends. They are part of what God gives to us. As we walk with God, he makes all of this stuff available, but we don't even understand any of it. And so we're just happy to be driving in the car. I'm in the Jesus car and this is great. We're, we got the new life. We've got all this stuff available. We kind of know it's there. And I know I got to sit down and kind of read the manual to discover how to do the thing. You know the thing. But I don't usually take the time to sit down and read the manual to figure out how to work the thing so that my experience can be what it was designed for. Are you following me? And my point is, is that in relationship with God, he's made available so much. And I think we reduce it down to so little so little. And I want to encourage you. I, I, want, I want to encourage you, first of all, to commit to discipleship, your own discipleship. Nobody is going to chase us down and make us have a relationship with God, nor are they going to make it vibrant. No accountability partner, no pastor, no spouse. It has to be a 100% commitment of our own. 
And when we make a commitment to God, he will literally fill that with the power of the Holy Spirit. God will commit his power to that which we profess to him. He will commit his own power to it. Nobody else can make that thing happen. Nobody else is gonna make that vibrant. And I tell you, I've been in a lot of accountability groups. I've watched a lot of people never get around to doing the thing or stopping the thing that is in the way of what God has made available to them. And often what it comes to is this, it's a surrender. I am willing to bet that so many of us do not need more knowledge. We just need more time on our knees. I'm just willing to bet that more of us do not need another Bible study, but what we do need is more time with God. That's what I'm willing to bet. And that when we come together and worship, sometimes we're, we're distracted. And, and I'm, I'm saying that we've got to use every spiritual environment to engage God and every slice of time that we might have, or at least we need to carve it out so that we can learn about this beautiful thing that God has invited us into and making available to us. And we hear other people describe it and we're like, that's awesome. I know that. But how many of you want to move from, I'm really, I'm really excited for somebody else to describe it. I want it myself. Isn't that the word that we heard from Pastor Jared? It was that I want to see him. I want to know his glory. I want to experience God. It is not a Pentecostal thing. It is a Christian thing to know him personally and to walk with him passionately. And no matter who we are or where we are, that is our lot in life. That is our lot in life. And here's what I'm, I'm asking. I'm asking for you to make a commitment tonight. I'm asking you to make a commitment to your discipleship, to you, wherever you're at. If you're on level one, great. If you're on level four, awesome. If you're on level six, whatever. Wherever we are as God sees us in our discipleship, but that we literally take hold of that place that we are and commit to going to the next place. Because when we do that, he will commit his power. He will commit his power. That's why it's so important in church when I make altar calls available, when I ask people to stand, when I ask people to raise their hand, I'm not doing it. I don't count. I mean, I forget. It's, I don't, I'm, half the time, I don't even see anybody doing that. What I'm seeing is that when anybody ever makes one step toward God, listen, he's making five steps towards us. When somebody makes a profession of faith, when somebody makes a commitment to the Lord and he commits his power, it's the unseen that is more powerful than the scene. But that one thing is a, is a powerful catalyst. And so this is why I've committed myself more and more to give altar calls in church and, and to compel people to receive Christ. And I'm doing that because I just believe we've got to go back to an environment, a culture of the altar, a culture of response. We've got to go back to that. Those are the days of revival, to commit to discipleship, and to not back down and to not just stay sad, but then just to stand in worship and to press into God and to go after him. So whether we raise a hand or stand or come forward, that's not my point. My point is commitment of the heart. That's what we're talking about. Let me share this with you. I have like three times that I close in a sermon. You, has anybody recognized that about me yet? Have you? You might appreciate it some other day in your life, but... Not this day. I had a vision of someone. Um, I hope you don't mind me sharing these prophetic words. I, I, uh, I've become accustomed to write and share whenever it happens, because sometimes it doesn't. So when it does, I just like, when I see it, I share it. I had a vision of somebody, and I could see their face. And their face was an obvious attitude. And you know, the word that came to me when I looked at them in the face in this vision was the word poisonous. I don't know what it's like to be poisoned or, or to have poison in your body in, in, in a, a real toxic sense, but that's the word that came to me was the word poisonous. And this person couldn't shake this, this overt negative sort of atmosphere on their life. Just, just, every, it just everything was opinionated perspectives were slanted. And I was writing that it comes from pain or hurt or wounds. And some of it comes from this built up anger 
from the loss that you've experienced. And here's what I, as I prayed through it, I heard, it was like I heard the Holy Spirit. I didn't hear him like an audible voice, but in my heart, this phrase, God desires a holy exchange. And when he desires that, what he's saying is, I want to take this from you that you've not been able to, to get rid of. And I want to exchange it. I can take the poison out of you. And there's a surrender that we, that we offer to God tonight. And as we do that, there'll be a divine exchange. I'm prophesying there will be a divine exchange. God will exchange the poison for his joy and his peace and his power. God will do that. He'll take it right out of us. As we forgive, as we submit, as we surrender, as we offer to him, whatever that is, we just ask him to evaluate. We give it to him. God will exchange. And the second person here tonight is I saw a picture of a mountain and then Judy walked up and told me about a mountain right after I saw a picture of a mountain. That's what it is to be a prophetic community. And I saw some of us walked halfway up the mountain, but we stopped to take a rest and breathe. We were tired. But then when it came time to move on and reach the top and go after getting to the peak again, nobody moved. Nobody moved. And so we camped there. We stayed halfway up. And so there's something in our life that is halfway done. And here's what I'll say to you. The Lord is calling us to continue what we began. And this is the time to move on. And I actually am relating this to our relationship with the Lord. I, I believe tonight there are some things that God called us to in relationship with him to start, but we did not continue. We started reading the Bible. We started entering into a new prayer life. We started down the road of relationship with him. We got halfway up and we just stayed there. And we've been there for a longer time than we want to admit. We've started things, but we have not sustained them. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. I want to say to you tonight, you can. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. Thanks for listening today. Pastor Ben's mission is to equip the church to impact the world. If you want to get connected, check the show notes and visit bendixon.org. From there, you can learn about Pastor Ben's other podcasts, the books he has written, Ignite Global Ministries, and the online Immersion Discipleship School.